Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, October 18th, 2011. say I'm excited about one portion of this program would be like a supreme understatement. <laughs> Sometimes I think I shouldn't be allowed to do what I do. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result, we've got to do the, well, the politically incorrect discernment work of, well, you know, opening up the scriptures and going, wait a second, is that really what the Bible says? And oftentimes, um, well, let's just put it this way. There is no, there is no immediate um, threat to me not having enough material to discuss on my program on any given day of the week. That's just, in fact, uh, I'm backlogged at the moment. And uh, <laughs> as a result of it, uh, yeah, as far as the material is concerned, no threat whatsoever of running out of material. No threat whatsoever. There's just too many crazy things being said out there because apparently people are just not concerned about teaching what the Bible teaches, especially if they hit some kind of stride in their notoriety or stride or uh, get noticed by particular people or ascend, you know, to the point where, you know, they've, you know, they would sacrifice mucho dinero by preaching the biblical gospel. There's a lot of money to be made in heresy, apparently. So you scratch those itching ears. Well, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of money to be made. Now, on the other end of it, discernment work doesn't pay as well as heresy does. <laughs> it's just the truth. But uh, I, I'm having more fun than they are. Anyway. So let's talk about what we're going to talk about in today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Now, if if you are an Apple fan, and what I mean by that is is that uh, like me, uh, you are a big fan of Apple products uh, that uh, you know that 
you uh, you look forward to the the latest releases from uh, uh, from Apple in there in Cupertino, California. Uh, like me, you're sad about the loss of Steve Jobs, things of that nature. Then, well, then you're fully aware of the fact that uh, the iPhone 4S has hit the market, and the iPhone 4S. Well, um, let's, they, it's got a new thing. It's got a new feature. Um, you know, I, I remember when the first iPhone came out that it was a big deal about the fact that uh, when that iPhone came out, there was no stylus with it. The whole point of the iPhone was is that the thing that you were going to do to interact with your iPhone was use your fingers, use your digits. And, uh, well, you know... <laughs> Yeah, I'm. You know, we've all been looking forward to the day when you know the Star Trek generation, you know, comes to planet Earth, and we don't have to use our digits to interact with our computerized devices. Instead, we can use our voices. Well, um, uh, Apple, with the latest edition of the uh, iPhone, the iPhone 4S, has released uh, a, a an artificial intelligence system uh, in order to for you to interact with your iPhone, so that you can ask it questions. Um, and it, you know, it, it knows how to search databases. It uses artificial intelligence to analyze just natural speech to figure out what you're, what you need. And uh, from what I've seen, uh, regarding the, um, well, the reviews regarding the iPhone 4S is that, uh, the, that Siri, that's the name of this artificial intelligence feature, uh, is, is, is kind of sassy. Uh, you, you know, you ask it certain questions and it'll give you a sassy response. You ask it what the meaning of life is. And one of its standard answers is 42. Uh, that's the answer. Uh, that's the, the answer to the meaning of life, the universe and everything. Uh, those of you familiar with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, now I don't have an iPhone 4S. I have an iPhone 4 and, uh, quite frankly, I, you know, I well, I'm not all that convinced I need to upgrade quite yet. So I, you know, I'm kind of holding off. So, uh, but uh, I I got an opportunity to well interact with Siri earlier today, and uh, and as a result of my interactions with Siri, uh, in this episode and some future episodes, we'll be playing for you the questions that well I asked Apple's supreme art and artificial intelligence system uh regarding things well that have to pertain to the well what goes on on this program the people that we review and stuff like that so uh here's our first installment with you know uh, questions a uh, theological uh, pastoral uh questions or questions regarding American evangelicalism with Apple's new artificial intelligence system Siri uh, so he- here's uh, what I recorded earlier today Siri, what is your analysis of the sermon Rick Warren preached this past Sunday? Let me think about that. Here you go. Rick Warren quoted 15 Bible verses out of context using 11 different translations and paraphrases. Even an iPhone utilizing artificial intelligence is smart enough to know that there is less than a 1 in 10,000 chance that Rick Warren was preaching the truth. Siri, can you explain your analysis of Rick Warren's sermon to somebody who is a fan of Star Wars? You have a greater chance of successfully navigating an asteroid field than you do of hearing Rick Warren accurately teach the scriptures. Have you ever prayed a sun stand still prayer? Why would I do something as silly as that? The story of the sun standing still in Joshua chapter 10 is not about prayer. Looking in Joshua chapter 10 to learn how to pray is like asking your Macintosh to teach you how to use Windows 7. What do you think of Joel Osteen's sermons? Is this a joke? 
No, this is not a joke. I'd really like to know what you think of Joel Osteen's sermons. Words like junk food, cotton candy, and cancer-causing artificial sweeteners come to mind. <laughs> so that's our first installment of uh, uh, theological questions for Siri, uh, Apple's new uh, artificial intelligence. Talk about intelligent. I mean, apparently they uh, they built Siri with uh, some really good sound biblical discernment. I mean, she said... It sounds like Siri, who's working from artificial intelligence, has more intelligence than some of the folks out there, uh, some of the religious consumers out there. Let's just put it that way. So that's our first installment of uh, questions for Siri. I thought that was worth passing along. So now let's talk about what we're going to talk about on, you know, on the rest of today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, okay, so he, here's the deal. I, I'm going to gripe about this. Uh, you know, my com, uh, I'm going to gripe about the first segment we're going to do. I'm going to be playing a uh, part of a video from uh, uh, YouTube of Wa Lance Wal Walnow. <clears throat> Say that ten times fast. Lance Walnow uh, of Seven Mountains fame. Uh, you know, uh, think Dominionist here, discussing the Seven Mountains strategy. And here's what I'm going to complain about. Okay, there is a group out there called Right Wing Watch, and um, here's the thing that's bugging me. I mean, really, 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 really bugging me is that they keep putting videos up from, you know, like heretical folks that we review here at Fighting for the Faith, and I find myself agreeing with the folks over at Right Wing Watch, at least in holding up this, the folks that they're holding up as people who are teaching false doctrine and who are dangerous. And in this particular case, the thing that's bugging me is is that the left wing uh, is holding up these heretics like you know Cindy Jacobs and others up as if somehow they represent the mainstream of conservative thought. And the problem is is that I don't know, I'm not so sure that they're wrong. And uh, so it's bugging me that uh, politically left-wing folks, um, I'm finding myself in agreement on regarding their critiques of American evangelicalism. Let's just say that that, um, how does the, uh, the cowboy term go? That chaps my hide. So yeah, I just want to let everybody know that, I, that uh, I, I'm regist officially registering my complaint uh, regarding the fact that, the, the, that there's a lot of p political conservatives out there who are – Basically, believing some of the craziest stuff regarding Christianity, and uh, and uh, it's nice that uh, that I w they won't be voting against me on any given election. But it bugs me that um, that uh, their religion uh, doesn't reflect sound biblical doctrine like at all. So, just want to let you all know know that I've got a a a story from the um, Christian Post that I'll be talking about here about uh, the movie One Eighty. Uh, apparently that thing has gone viral, and if you haven't seen it, it's it's a it's a compelling argument that uh, Ray Comfort has put together there, and the way he un unfolds it is um, actually well done, and so at least worth uh, watching uh, that. And then um, I'm going to begin today. I'm gonna I'm gonna well today we're going to begin a, kind of a multi-part thing regarding biologos, and so I'm gonna be I'm gonna be playing part of a Ken Ham video, part one today. Part two probably tomorrow or the next day depends on how soon Albert Mueller gets his uh, uh, his response to Carl Guyberson up on his website. If you if you uh, follow the op-ed uh, section of the New York Times, uh, which I do follow, um, not because I read the New York Times to find things that are satisfying to my soul. 
but because it's one of the, the liberal rags that I monitor to see what they say. But Carl Guyberson of Biologos fame is uh, basically <laughs> thrown down uh, in an op-ed in an op-ed piece at the New York Times, basically accusing American evangelicals of uh, of basically giving up on reason, you know, thinking the ability to think. And so um, rather than me providing the commentary, since Albert Mueller has been the one who's really in the public uh, uh, duking it out with uh, Carl Guyberson, I saw Albert Mueller earlier today tweeting that he was going to be responding to that. So I kind of think of it, if you think of it in terms of warfare, like air combat, Mueller is already on Guyberson 6 and is about ready to launch a you know, a missile. So just, <laughs> I'll wait for him to fire and, and then we'll respond. And, uh, and then Thabiti Anabwile, uh, he, boy, he's got another great piece. I think this guy's can like hitting it out of the park lately. And, uh, the, uh, the question, the, how, how pastors become celebrities is the name of his piece. We'll take a look at that. And then we're going to go to, uh, Clayton, North Carolina to wave church and uh, Pastor Steve Kelly there, and we're going to be reviewing a sermon called "Is Your uh, Destiny Connected to Your Leader?" And I got to warn you, this sermon—well, it, it made me mad when I listened to it because uh, basically this guy, uh, uh, Steve Kelly, I mean, he's mangling God's word to basically make it sound like if you want to succeed in life, you got to submit to your pastor, and if you don't like what he says, tough turkey, he's an authority over you. That, you can go pound sand if you don't like what he's doing because uh, God's put him there and you need to submit and obey him. Yeah, that's pretty much the uh, takeaway I got from the sermon. So, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> just want to warn you ahead of time there might be a, a fist. Well, let me play the warning. I, it, I think it would be best if I did that. Uh, here, here we go. Warning. Fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouthitosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. What do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. The Pinky, the Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world. The Yeah, we're going to be doing a Dominionist update. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow the earth. The pinky, the pinky and the brain. Brain, 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 brain. All right, I, I want everybody to know that when it comes to these uh, New Apostolic Reformation Dominionists, I have about as much in common with them uh, religiously as I do, uh, well, 
with Mitt Romney. That's I just want to let you all know that. So, yeah, I, I don't care that these new apostolic reformation folks say that they believe in Jesus. The Jesus they believe in, I'm not familiar with him. Anyway, uh, here's um, here's a discussion, um, you know, uh, regarding uh, the question is, is the seven mountain strategy dominionism? That's the question that's on the uh, table. And Lance Wallnow of um, seven mountain dominionism fame uh, says some things that, well, um, <laughs> let's just say they're enlightening. So uh, without any further ado, let's let's listen into this conversation. Well, you know, as we've been in this for, what, almost 10 years now, um, you know, often the resistance can come from the place we most think is unlikely, but it actually can be within our own camp of the church. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that uh, our four-minute video that sort of cast the vision for the seven mountains. It's amazing. There's that word. <laughs> cast the vision for the seven mountains. Uh, again, I come back to my perennial um, uh, <clears throat> observation, and that is is that, yeah, the, the seven mountains Im imagery, that's like really, really, really bad. Like... <laughs> Really bad. Um, yeah, when you read Revelation, the seven mountains, yeah, that's that's those are that's actually satanic kind of imagery, Babylon kind of imagery. It's not good. What kind of comments we get back from that? And uh, there are uh, questions like, well, is this a theology? Uh, is this dominionism? Uh, are you trying to control culture? Let's put that one on the table here and just get your your thoughts on that, and I'll give you my thoughts. How about we start with you, Lance? All right, so here comes Lance Wall now. That's the setup. Yeah, the, uh, what, well, like I said last night, the irony is we're not in danger of anybody getting too, too, uh, too giddy with too much dominion. The, uh, the church anywhere globally is struggling to be able to uh, sustain itself and preserve its own, uh, its own existence. So the whole anxiety about the uh, dominionism comes from that three groups I talked about last night, if all you do is meet the uh, person who is the warrior, you get the warrior, the bride, and the statesman. Those are the three faces of where the church is. That's the, the warrior bride statesman. Mm-hmm. Three types of streams we've got. If, uh, if you meet the person who is in opposition to culture and they're the warrior, I mean, it's part of my problem is people will take my message link their own interpretation to it and go out and talk about taking down high places coming against the devil i'm very i'm very particular where i use that language Be uh, okay now listen to what he's saying here because here comes here comes the um the irony of the statement so okay so he's complaining that okay so here's the idea when you talk about the seven mountains um Keep in mind, there's three faces that the church puts on. The warrior face, the bride face, and I forget the other face. Um, <laughs> but the uh, the issue here is, is that um, uh, he's going to make the claim that if you got your warrior face on, you got to be careful who you're talking to. Warrior talk needs to be basically inside the camp talk. And otherwise, you're going to make people nervous. Watch what he does here. Because you don't want to startle the horses out of the barn. If you're talking to a secular audience, you don't talk about having dominion over them. I mean, my gosh, that's what they're afraid of. That's what the left is saying, you know, the right wants to do, and the right is saying the left wants to do. Uh -huh. <laughs> 
Okay, um, can, can I point out like something really obvious here? Um, and l- l- that is is that um, when folks like Right Wing Watch, whom I have like zero political common ground with, uh, rightly point out that there's a group of Christians running around, well, g- people who call themselves Christians in the c- conservative movement in evangelical Christianity, who are talking about taking over the world. Um, can I point something out here, Lance? Um, when they're talking that way, the videos that are being put up at places like Right Wing Watch, um, those videos were initially made for, uh, well, the people in the camp. Um, so this is just one of those weird things that it's like, so the problem is, is that uh, they're talking the wrong way to the wrong audience. Um, maybe the theology is the problem. You know, that's just, you know, I'm just going to put it out there. Maybe it's the theology that's the problem. And uh, so he's saying the problem is, is that there's people out there who are talking about taking dominion uh, and they're and they're saying it well to the wrong group of people. You know, they're not. Um, the videos that are being put on the Internet and making everybody nervous is not a bunch of dominionists walking around on the street talking to a bunch of pagans going, hey, buddy. Let me tell you about something, man. Me and Jesus, we're like this, man. And that means I'm taking dominion over you, buddy. Yeah, that's not what's going on. It, these are internal pep talks that are making their way to YouTube as kind of an expose. And everyone's going, ooh, what's that? that uh, you, really? Yeah, it, it, those dominionists sure do sound like they're trying to set up some kind of a theocracy. You know what I'm saying? So let me back this up again because, you know, we got the warrior talk and all that kind of stuff. But I want you to hear what he's saying in context. And go out and talk about taking down high places, coming against the devil. I'm very, I'm very particular where I use that language because you don't want to startle the horses out of the barn. If you're talking to a secular audience, you don't talk about having dominion over them. Yeah, that yeah, they'll run away and they won't let you take dominion over them. You don't want to startle the horses out of the barn now, do you? I mean, my gosh, that's what they're afraid of. That's what the left is saying, you know, the right wants to do, and the right is saying the left wants to do. So the anxiety is based on misinformation. That what I'm saying today... <laughs> No, it's not based on misinformation. You're not actually saying, well, that's not what dominionism teaches or that's not what the Seven Mountains is all about. You're basically just saying that they're spe- they're saying they're speaking too forcefully to the wrong audience and spooking people that instead they should probably take dominion over them first and then let them know that that's the case. It's, you know, I want to find out who's anointed with the right ideas and I want to serve them. And I want to, to be a Joseph, you're going to shape Pharaoh. This whole idea of taking over. And that language of takeover, it doesn't actually help. It's good for preaching of the choir, and it's short. <laughs> it doesn't help. You go ahead and talk that way to the choir. Let them know we're taking over. But don't don't say that to the pagan out there. It, it's not going to help our cause. It might set us back. He, he's not repudiating the doctrine. And if we interpret it right, but it's very bad for media because we're not really trying to take over. Uh, we're trying to... Uh, Preserve and save culture and create a world that works for everyone and leaves no one out. And if that's the kind of language we use, which is statesman language, by the way. Uh, then- oh, boy. So, yeah, that's right. It's warrior, bride, and statesman. So make sure that uh, for those of you out there who believe in dominionist theology, that um, that when you're talking to the media or talking to pagans out there, just make sure that you use the statesman language and don't kind of talk the internal talk shop that, you know, about taking over in their presence. Be more statesmanlike. <laughs> I mean, this is- 
I mean, th- th- I mean, seriously, this is like I-, I remember the days of the Cold War, you know. And uh, now before my time, I I wasn't alive, but uh, who was it? Brezhnev he was in the UN, pounding his shoe on the table, saying, "We are going to bury you," you know. It, yeah, that wasn't very statesmanlike. So. It, <laughs> Yeah, and, and so it, it, instead of telling us that they're telling folks that we're going to take over and we're going to better you, yeah, we're, we're going to take over and we're going to enslave all of you people. <laughs> Rather than doing that, you be more statesmanlike and say, "Oh no, 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 we're not about taking over. We're not, no, no, no. What we're really about is, uh, it's about preserving cultures. Yes, we just want to protect you from yourself. Yeah, that's what we're doing. So we, we're just going to make sure that we." Well, you know. <laughs> I am officially creeped out. I'm just, oh, man. Okay, so I've got to move along because otherwise I'm going to lose it. But, uh, you know, moving on to a little bit of happier news. From the Christian Post, the pro-life evangelist uh, push for 180, the movie, uh, has now hit 1 million views. Yeah, I got to tell you, you know, uh, Ray Comfort, uh, if you haven't seen this movie, I I think it's still on YouTube, but uh, go to 180movie.com. What if you if you're familiar with Ray Comfort's ministry, the guy is like the the uh, the quintessential street preacher. I mean, this guy. You know, he goes out and he, you know, got to, he has his little soapbox and the guy's done so much open air evangelism that, um, he really has mastered the art of being able to ask a good question that gets somebody thinking. And, and the questions are designed to progress and move somebody along kind of a, a thought continuum to move them from one way of thinking to another. And what he's done with the 180 movie is, um, the, the, the beginning part of it is actually kind of frightening. Um, in the sense that uh, he's, you know, he makes the connection and rather well. It's it's a very well developed argument, uh, connecting uh, and comparing uh, abortion to uh, the uh, the German Holocaust uh, during World War II, and it's it's just it's 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 a fascinating movie. And my only beef with it is is that um, you know the the average person wouldn't quite have the savvy that uh, that Ray Comfort has. And I, I think results may vary. And, you know, this is a, it's an argument that you have to practice because, you know, that, that anyway, that's that that's about my issue. But it's a, it's a fine, fine illustration. And uh, and anything that, uh, you know, at least some kind of a good, well thought out argument regarding uh, the genocide that's taking place in Western civilization as a result of abortion. I, I, I think Ray Comfort's done a good job. But anyway, Alex, uh, uh Maroshko of the Christian Post writes, an army of pro-life evangelists on Facebook have helped push a 33-minute anti-abortion video to 1 million views, said the social media manager for Living Waters, the ministry that produced the film. The dramatic film 180, which was released less than a month ago, catches the responses of young adults to a series of questions by evangelist Ray Comfort, in which he begins by asking whether they know who Adolf Hitler uh, was and the fact that he sanctioned the killing of 11 million people. While interviewing those with a pro-abortion stance, Comfort transitioned from talk about lives lost in the Holocaust to lives lost as a result of abortions in the United States. Comfort recently said he was sickened by the answers so many people gave to a hypothetical question. He asked them 
after describing a life-and-death Holocaust-like scenario. The uh, 180 Movie Facebook page has become a focal point for social media users to place posts that include the transformational stories about people changing their minds to a pro-life stance. Additionally, those who have decided to share the link to the video have come to the site to get insights on how to better share the film and its message. And uh, there are currently more than 22,000 Facebook users who like the page. Uh, quote, we have about 1,000 people that are very passionate about promoting 180 on Facebook, said social media reach owner uh, Shane Martin, who has donated his services uh, to the Living Waters cause. This core group of people is, is each sharing more than two or three times a day on their Facebook page. Uh, which in many cases uh, uh, cause irritation for some people. However, they have counted the cost, and if their Facebook friends are not impressed with them posting and reposting on a daily basis, they don't really care. The Facebook effort has been clearly off the hook. Half the people who have viewed the movie probably would not have watched it without the Facebook push, he said. Anyway, so, you know, if it, I, I'm glad to hear that the uh, the movie's gone viral and that they've had over a million views. And if you haven't seen it, it's... Again, it's absolutely worth uh, watching and good, compelling argument, well put together and um, and worth studying and having in your quiver uh, as far as uh, you know things that we talk about with uh, people who, well, don't share the same worldview that we do. And, um, you know, my my addition to it would be <clears throat> a clear proclamation of the forgiveness of sins. So that, you know, that would be what I would want to add to that. But anyway. Great, great movie. Glad to hear that it's uh, gone viral. So, all right, we are up on our uh, first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Schmelevins. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> How can I help you? Hello, I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? 
you know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes! My goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, and good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent! Excellent! Now for the final step. You have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think... I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god! Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, don't forget that when you preach the law regarding abortion, to also preach the gospel. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring this important outreach to you and to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and... Uh, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says join, uh, do donate, don't join aid. That's two days in a row where the brain and my mouth are not in agreement. <laughs> One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send that to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 and thank you thank you thank you for those of you who are financially supporting us we truly uh, could not be doing what we're doing without your partnership so all right let's move along She loves a monkey's uncle, yeah. 
loves the monkeys, Uncle. Whoa, whoa. She loves the monkeys, Uncle. And the monkeys, Uncle, they form me. Well, I don't care what the whole world thinks. She loves the monkeys, Uncle. Call us a couple of missing links. She loves the monkeys, Uncle. Monkeys, Uncle, and the monkeys, Uncle, they for me. They for me. All right. Yeah, that means that we're going to be doing a Biologos update. Now, we're, <laughs> it's been a while since we've talked about Biologos, but what I would like to do here is I'm going to play for you. Um, Ken Ham has done a, a pretty lengthy, um, uh, well, video uh, that he's put up on his website uh, regarding uh, the anti-biblical teachings of Biologos. And uh, he's kind of done it fighting for the faith style, which is kind of fun. Uh, he plays uh, clips from some of the <clears throat> the guilty parties and then just lets you hear what it is that they're saying for themselves and then provides the biblical commentary. And so what I'm going to do is uh, this particular video is only 20 minutes long, but I'm going to cut it up into two pieces. And uh, so this is uh, Ken Ham going after the Biologos gang. And uh, and it, this needs to be done. So and uh, now I may play part two tomorrow, or I might let Albert Mueller and and um, and uh, Carl, Carl Guyberson, uh, you know, get into the mix, depending on how soon uh, Albert Mueller gets his response up to uh, uh, Carl Guyberson's uh, New York Times op-ed piece that was published today. So, uh, but uh, so this will kind of prime the pump, though. Uh, here's Ken Ham uh, talking about. Uh, the anti-biblical teachings of Biologos. Carl Guyberson, he's a professor at a Nazarene college, and he believes, as the magazine article said, unfortunately the concepts of Adam and Eve as the literal first couple and the ancestors of all humans simply do not fit the evidence. Listen to him and what he says in his own words. You can be a Christian and believe in evolution, because you do. And the foreword uh, to your book is written by Francis Collin, and he does. So yes, you can. Lots of people do. Uh, but, but is it logically consistent to do so? I mean, lots of people believe inconsistent things as well. So how, how do you reconcile Christianity and evolution? It's only if we get distracted by the first couple of chapters of Genesis. And Did you hear that? <laughs> Did you hear that from a Nazarene professor? It's only if we're distracted by Genesis the first two chapters. And elevate them in importance beyond what's appropriate that we have a, a real conflict. Wow. It's only a conflict if we're distracted by God's word in Genesis 1 and 2. Another Nazarene professor, that, uh, uh, Guyberson was from uh, Eastern Nazarene uh, College there in Massachusetts. Daryl Falk is from uh, San Diego. And in the article it says the human population, this is what he believes, the human population was definitely never as, never as small as two. Our species diverged as a population. The data are absolutely clear on that. What he means is man's historical science says that. Listen to him in his own words. Imagine a professor like this teaching your children at a college that you're spending money that you think they're being educated to believe the Bible. Here he is from Point Loma Nazarene University. The age of the universe is around 13 billion years old, and I would uh, uh, talk to them a little bit, and, and I would say the age of the earth is 4.3 billion years old. I've got various books I could refer them to, and I could, and I would uh, go through and say, here's the kind of data uh, that, that shows the age of the, age of the universe. 
By the way, I have a book I would refer them to. <laughs> Let's go on. People look at that and they say, if I, if, I, if I let go of Genesis 1 through 3, like it seems like science is telling us we ought to do. Ah, science? What does he mean by science? It's not observational science. This is man's historical science. Man's beliefs about the past is telling us we've got to let go of the Bible and what it says. See, belief in billions of years is, is science to them. It's not science, it's a belief. And that's the reason they're saying you've got to let go of Genesis 1 to 3. Many of you will have heard of Francis Collins. Francis Collins directed the government-sponsored Human Genome Project. He's now a director of the National Institutes of Health appointed by President Obama. And he wrote a book called The Language of God. A scientist presents evidence for belief. And he said how he, as a Christian, believes in evolution. And in the Christianity Today article, they said about this book, he reported scientific indications that anatomically modern humans emerged from primate ancestors 100,000 years ago, long before the apparent Genesis time frame. By the way, they know the Genesis time frame is not millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years. And originated with a population that numbered something like 10,000, not two individuals. You notice how this emphasis today from these Christian academics, we don't believe in Adam and Eve anymore. Not one man and, and one woman. And uh, goes on, might Genesis be presenting a poetic and powerful allegory about God endowing humanity with a spiritual and moral nature? I want you to hear Francis Collins in his own words. He's also the founder of an organization called BioLogos, and BioLogos is starting to infiltrate the church. In fact, they're now producing a homeschool curriculum to get homeschoolers not to believe Genesis. Uh, they, uh, if you read their site, extremely liberal in many of the ideas that they have in regard to teaching you concerning what to believe or not believe about the Bible. But listen to Francis Collins. How do you as a devout Christian square your scientific beliefs? It's interesting that they use excerpts from the Creation Museum as they interview him. I thought that was fascinating. Scientific beliefs with what it says in Genesis. I like the idea that God gave us two books. He gave us the book of God's words, the Bible, which I read every day and which I trust to give me great truth, but which in many ways has parts that I don't entirely understand. But that other book God gave us, uh, the book of God's works, nature, which science allows us to uncover, is also an opportunity to learn about the nature of God, to worship, if you will. The book of nature, do you know what he means by that? That's that Hugh Ross concept of man's interpretation of nature of millions of years, Big Bang. Oh, by the way, there's things about that. He, does, he understands that. What he doesn't understand is what the Bible says in places. You know why? Because it, it conflicts with what man is saying. Genesis would leave us to believe that the earth is 6,000 years old. Um, and it would lead us to believe that God created two human beings, one out of the rib of the other. It's pretty explicit stuff. We interpret it as explicit these days. It is not a textbook of science. <laughs> By the way, not a textbook of science. What, is, what does he mean? See, the Bible is not a textbook like a physics textbook. But it is a textbook of science because it's a historical science is talking it's God's history book that's the point but when he says textbook of science see see they confuse these terms for people and that's what you have to understand the difference between observational science and historical science and where he finds the conflict is not because of the observational science it's because of the historical science it would not have suited God's purposes to lecture to his chosen people about radioactive decay 
and, and uh, such things as DNA. By the way, DNA, he was involved in the Genome Project. You can look at it, you can observe it, you can uh, uh, actually um, uh, count the genes and so on. That's observational science. Radioactive decay, that's observational science. You can experience, see it happening. You can measure things. But interpreting things in relation to the past when you weren't there, that's the difference. That's what we need to understand. What God was trying to teach us through those words is the nature of God and the nature of humans, and that comes through loud and clear. See, the details don't matter, it's just as long as there's some meaning there somewhere. I don't think anything can mean anything if it doesn't say anything, really. Dr. Collins has just started up a new organization called BioLogos. That's a made-up word, but the, uh, the goal of this organization is to try to bridge the gap between faith and science. Ah, there it is again. Bridge that gap between faith and... What do they mean? They really mean to bridge the gap between what the Bible says and evolution. So what do they do? They change evolution? Change millions of years? No, they change the Bible. That's what they do. Bruce Wolke, I mentioned him before. Uh, the Christianity Today article said he sees Adam and Eve as historical individuals, but if genetics produces the conclusion that scripture has a collectively represented it as an individual, that doesn't bother me, he said. We have to go with the scientific evidence. We don't go with the Bible, we go with man's historical science. That's what he's saying. He says, I don't think we can ignore it. I have full confidence in scripture, but it does not represent what science represents. In other words, you know, in, in, in some ways, I would interpret that as saying, yeah, he's right. The Bible does not give man's beliefs about the past. It, give, it gives God the history, the true history of the world. But of course, he doesn't mean it like that. But listen to Bruce Walke for yourself. I think that if the data is overwhelming in favor favor of evolution to deny that reality will make us a cult uh, some odd group that's not really interacting with the real world Peter Enns is a speaker from BioLogos and he's the one that's actually writing this homeschool curriculum and when I found out what Peter Enns believed and they were selling his curriculum at the homeschool conference I, I had to, in fact, we'd already told the organizers, I can't speak unless I say something about him. Uh, not him personally, but his beliefs. And I did, and then something happened that we still don't really know what happened behind the scenes. But uh, I was eliminated. He wasn't eliminated. He was allowed to continue to speak. So I've got a few extra clips of him tonight. I, I, wanted, I wanted to, you know, I just wanted to show you more about what he believes, seeing as he was allowed to do that. But here's what it says in the Christianity Today article. To Peter Enns, a literal atom as a special creation without evolutionary forebears is at odds with everything else we know about the past from the natural sciences. There it is again, and cultural remains. As he reads the early chapters of Genesis, he says, the Bible itself in invites a symbolic reading by using cosmic battle imagery and drawing parallels between Adam and Israel. You haven't seen that? Oh, you've you got to listen to his lecture. After scanning various interpretations of Genesis, Enns joins those who see the Genesis passages on Adam as a story of Israelite origins, not the origin of all humanity, in which case there is no essential conflict with evolutionary theory. That's what it's all about. Let's come up with a view so we don't have a conflict with evolution. Let's change the Bible. All right, that was uh, part one of uh, Ken Ham and his lecture regarding the anti-biblical teachings of Biologos. And he makes, uh, there's one particular point I want to highlight and kind of remake for him. 
And that is is that guys like Guyberson and others, um, these guys are supposedly teaching at Christian universities. Um, so that that the reason why that's important is is because you know as a parent, um, you know I've I've got two adult children and I've got another one coming up through high school. Um, you, you know if I were to pay money for my child to attend a Christian university or a Christian college. My expectation is is that what they're going to be taught at that Christian university or that Christian t- college is going to accord with sound Christian biblical doctrine and teaching that at that university rather than being having evolution shoved down their throats and the Bible basically butchered into a million pieces that it, instead they would be taught uh, the the scientific uh, lack of evidence regarding evolution and how to refute it both biblically and scientifically. So yeah, the the you know, so you know, listen, it, uh, it's one thing when you've got a bunch of folks running around the landscape who are atheistic uh, scientists sitting there saying, "Oh, the, well, science science has proven that evolution is uh, true," which it hasn't. Uh, but it's a whole other thing when you got uh, men and professors at Christian universities going, oh, yeah, well, the overwhelming evidence is that evolution is true. No, it isn't. I mean, evolution, it just falls apart like a house of cards when you start pushing on it. Doesn't take much push either to get that whole thing to come crumbling down. So, I, I you know, again, I, I, I admired the work of um, Ken Hammond. Tomorrow, we're going to be hearing uh, more from Peter Enns. And, uh, you know, so th- this is just kind of the warm-up. Part two is is a little e- even meatier than this. But uh, with that, we're going to move along here. And uh, last uh, segment for uh, the first hour, uh, Thibidion Abuile. Man, this guy is, uh, he is on a roll, man. Um, you know, he's got, he's got his elephant gun out. <laughs> and he knows how to use this thing. Anyway, uh, the, he's written a uh, a blog post over the Gospel Coalition at, at the, his blog there, and um, the name of it is "With a Little Help from Their Friends, How Pastors Become Celebrities." Listen to this. We've tried to do a little work on definitions and the scope of the problem. All of that simply lays the foundation for us to work on theory. That's what we're really concerned about because theory allows us to explain the the dynamic on some level and at least for the practitioner begin to propose solutions to the problem. Here's where the rubber meets the road. No one denies that a problem exists. We simply disagree about A, the appropriate terminology for accurately describing the phenomena, and B, uh, the scope of the problem. Some see the culture of celebrity under every conference brochure. Others see celebrity seeking in the lives of a few particular pastors. But there's uh, one more fundamental question to ask in order to develop a working theory. How does it happen? How does a person go from uh, being a pastor to being a celebrity pastor or a rock star pastor? If you're really interested in the cultural analysis of celebrity, you really need to read a few books. Daniel J. Borston's groundbreaking work, The Image, A Guide to Pseudo-Events in America, and Neil Gabler's Life, the movie How Entertainment Conquered Reality. Uh, Borston, as far as I can tell, introduces the term celebrity to the American landscape, defining it tautologically as, quote, a person who is uh, known for his (laughs) well-knownness. 
Interesting. So a celebrity is somebody who is known for their well-knownness. Gabler, more sanguine about the concept uh, than Burston, thinks of celebrity as an art form wrought in the medium of life. Indeed, Gabler contends that celebrity is now the culture's dominant art form, not only in the attention it demands or in the way it subjugates other media, but in the way it seems to refract so many of the best concerns the culture precisely as art does. The celebrity Borston feared was the unmasking of the great man. Gabler hails as art refracting life. You couldn't get two more opposing views to read Gabler's engaging interaction with Borstein. There's a link that you can click on on Thabiti's uh, uh, website. Anyway, he says, I'd like to propose a framework that points, uh, that posits something of a hybrid of Borston and Gabler. I'm not so much attempting to reconcile their views as much as use both men's work as a way of illustrating two processes when conflated are conflated with bad results. I want to suggest a noble path to notoriety and mirror mirror it with the corrupt corridor to celebrity. Then I hope to say a word about how notoriety becomes celebrity. The noble path to uh, to notoriety. The Bible not only allows a godly category for notoriety, but commands Christians to honor the noteworthy. We see this in places like 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 18, which says, With him we are sending the brothers who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Or Philippians chapter 2, verses 22, 29 through 30, with its commendation of Timothy, uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Uh, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. So receive him and the Lord with all joy and honor, uh, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Or in the context of the local church, the command in First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, which says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. One important feature about each of these commendations is the individual's work and accomplishments. These persons are well-known and honored because of their work and accomplishments in the Lord. In other words, they've earned, if you will, the respect of the church because they are proven, risk their life in service, or rule well, especially in the ministry of the Word. We may safely conclude that the Bible is not describing shallow, superficial celebrity. These accolades are honest and redound to the glory of God himself, who was at work in these men to will and to do his good pleasure. The noble path to the notoriety may be illustrated as beginning one, work, two, accomplishment or provenness, three, notoriety, four, honor. The person and the and their work attract the appropriate attention and respect of their peers and followers. I've chosen the terms notoriety and honor to distinguish from sometimes negative connotations of fame and celebrity. Whatever prominence, notoriety, and honor these persons receive, they receive justly because of their labor in the Lord. Indeed, the Lord himself commands his people to respond with honor. Now, I'm going to pause here and, and make a note. Um, one of the complaints I see come up on a regular basis, okay, and and this and and, and I'm glad that Thabiti has written this, and the reason why is because over and again, one of the complaints I see, and and it usually shows up by uh, people making comments on my Facebook wall or send me a Twitter tweet. I still hate that word, but uh, the idea is is this: 
um, every single conference somehow is guilty of uh, creating pastoral celebrities. And I would say, yeah, no, that's not really the case at all. Um, you know, so, so, here's the deal. When Al Mohler or Michael Horton or Thabiti Anabwile speak at a conference, it is not the cult of celebrity. One of the reasons why these men have been asked to such conferences and why why I, in many, time, many cases, enjoy or find edifying what they've said at these conferences and rebroadcast them here on Fighting for the Faith or Pirate Christian Radio is specifically because what they've said uh, shows good work. It's, it, they've shown precision and accomplishment in rightly handling God's Word, and it's got my attention as a result of it. These men are craftsmen at rightly handling God's Word, and as a result of it, the notoriety and honor they get, both on this program or in conferences and stuff like that, is not is not the cult of celebrity. That is the result of hard, faithful work uh, in in the kingdom of God, doing the Lord's work specifically with His Word. So, no, every conference is not guilty of the cult of celebrity. Okay, and as a result of it, I mean, we all know qualitatively when there's a conference and it has the Bidiana Buile, Michael Horton, uh, Rod Rosenblatt, uh, uh, Albert Muller, and guys like that. That's a conference you're going to want to pay attention to. And you're very, you're, you know, you want to hear what's come out of there. In fact, you may even be anticipating it. And you know that that's like a killer lineup, not because those guys are celebrity, but celebrities, but because those guys specifically have worked so hard in rightly handling God's word. And they have been proven after years and years and years of faithful service in, uh, in the Lord's harvest field. Okay. Then you turn around, and you get a conference like, you know, you get Stovall, Weems, Rick Warren, Perry Noble, Stephen Fur- Furtick, and others, and you just roll your eyes knowing that what's going to happen at that conference is ridiculous. And none of those guys, none of them deserves honor or notoriety because all of them are miserable handlers of God's word. They're rock star pastors who are celebrities. And uh, if we were, if the Christian church were to judge them based on the same standards that we judge men like Albert Muller, none of them would be taken seriously. They all be laughing stocks. You, you get what I'm saying? Anyway, that's kind of <clears throat> my little commentary. Anyway, um, so Thabiti then has this next section in his article, and it's called The Corrupt Corridor to Celebrity. I maintain celebrity is generally a pejorative and not a positive uh, and uh, nor is it good because the quarter to celebrity essentially empties notoriety of its nobility. Celebrity does this in one of two ways, either by eliminating accomplishment as the basis of fame and honor and or by embellishing a narrative that deifies the celebrity while creating a false attachment with the audience slash crowd. Gabler's work details this process most clearly. Now, according to Gabler, the difference between fame, simply being well-known, and celebrity is story or narrative or and tangibility. The celebrity is someone who lives out a, a plot line that captures the public's attention and makes the celebrity tangible, real, or accessible to that public. In other words, the public likes their story and in some way identifies with the celebrity. This explains and supports Truman's observation that celebrity includes a strange familiarity whereby the celebrities are referred to in quite intimate terms by people who've never met them or have only 
the most passing of connections with them. That connection, according to Gabler, gets created by the tangible narrative surrounding the celebrity. Now, I'm going to point this out. The uh, uh, the the documentary regarding the rise of uh, of Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, Stephen Furtick. Okay, the only thing that Stephen Furtick is really known for is having a quick, a rapidly growing church, and that could be attributed to just tenacious marketing. But somehow it's held up as somehow this proves that he's a man of God. No, it doesn't prove that he's a man of God at all, because if he were truly a man of God, um, he, he wouldn't be a celebrity. He, he would be noted for his accomplishments, true accomplishments, that really matter in the kingdom of God, such as rightly handling and teaching God's word. Over and again, the celebrity rock star pastors that are basically brought before the eyes of the church as men that everybody needs to be listening to, about the only thing they've been able to do is be, well, really good at marketing. And that does not equal accomplishment in the kingdom of God at all. Anyway, <clears throat> just want to point that out. Um, Thabiti continues, the narrative comes in two forms, star-driven stories based on the actual lives and achievement of the star. Think great actors like Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington and plot-driven narratives that sometimes involve unaccomplished persons. Think Joey Buttafuoco or T Tanya Harding in compelling dramas that interest us in the person. Contrary to Borston's view and that of many people today, some celebrities and famous persons are actually rather accomplished persons. Star-driven celebrity has longer staying power because once the plot, the, the plot in plot-driven narratives is over, the celebrity status fades as well. Think of uh, Cato Kalin. But in, other, in, but in either case, to go from simply being known to being a celebrity, one needs a compelling narrative and publicity. More on this in the later post. Uh, the corrupted corridor might look something like this. Star-driven corridor to celebrity goes work, accomplishments to provenness, fame, narrative, plus publicity to celebrity. The plot-driven corridor to celebrity goes something like this. Image, faux accomplishments, fame, narrative, plus publicity, and then celebrity. The star-driven process looks a lot like the noble path to notoriety, that's why many folks who simply should be honored may easily be mistaken as celebrities, especially in a subculture or among individuals already nervous about conferring honor on others. Although the star-driven celebrification process looks like the noble path to notoriety, here's the difference. The narrative and publicity in the celebrity-making process renders the person a pseudo-event, Borston's term, or a human entertainment, Gabler's term. Folks who simply should be honored for their achievement and even folks with no achievements can be celebritized when the real person gets eclipsed by a role or an image conflated with the person's real life. Gabler uses a great example. The only action John Wayne saw in World War II was on the screen in war films, yet his heroism in those movies became welded to his personal narrative to the point where he was given awards and honors for his bravery. People believed, evidently, wanted to believe that it was his story and not just his performance. Or consider the insights we gather from Gavler's evaluation of Charles Lindbergh. Borston saw Lindbergh's greatness and subsequent fame flowing from his accomplishment of having flown solo across the Atlantic Ocean in 1927. Lindbergh transmogrified into a celebrity only when his publicity and popularity reached a critical mass 
where they became the story, usurping the accomplishment itself and making Lindbergh well-known for being well-known. Or so Borston has it. What Borston failed to recognize is that the popularity is the byproduct of celebrity, not its source. For Lindbergh, the source was the narrative of that flight, a narrative that was later elaborated by his marriage to socialite Anne Morrow and the tragic kidnapping and murder of their baby in 1932. He wasn't well known for being well known. He was well a well-known celebrity because he had a great story and he remained a celebrity because he, or history, kept adding new chapters to it. When the performance supplants person, you have celebrity. Unaccomplished persons need the story to carry them to celebrity. Unaccomplished persons may become celebrities with minimal story, but when they do become celebrities, the public has welded a larger-than-life or simply other-than-life story to their persons. What normally becomes larger-than-life for evangelical pastors is either preaching ability, leadership, godliness, or all three. What should have stopped at honor gets transmogrified into idle and fantasy independent of and larger than the personal reality. Now, we've been arguing that no person can make themselves a celebrity any more than, uh, than a man can make a woman love him. We all play a part in making of celebrities. In fact, there are three primary players, the celebrity, the media, and the audience or crowd. The celebrity presents the achievements and narrative. The media provides the publicity or celebrity treatment. The public provides the audience to appreciate the narrative and admire its star. For in the end, celebrity without someone to consume it is like a movie without someone to watch it. In this way, the media and the public become the friends that make the pastor a celebrity. These gears turn swiftly and smoothly in our pixelated and digital age. We might call these interlocking relationships the culture of celebrity. We'll think m more, Lord willing, about the role of media and technology in this process, but for now we simply need to know that we're hacking our way through celebrity culture as a kind of cultural Kudzu. If you've been to my beloved North Carolina, you might know that kudzu grows over everything. But you might not, might also know that not everything is kudzu. What you think might be a dense forest, uh, uh, a forest of vines may only be a thin, sprawling network disguising a brick building or overhanging tall trees. Perhaps this is why people sometimes think they see celebrities everywhere. The kudzu celebrity culture does surround and grow on us all, but that doesn't make everything we see kudzu. So what happens when we confuse honor with celebrity? I'm assuming no one will argue against the principle of giving honor where honor is due. In fact, I'm assuming everyone wants to do that while guarding against celebrity-induced adulation. But what happens when we confuse celebrity with honor? I think there are three harmful results, which uh, is why I'm trying to think through the issue and offer a minority report on the subject. First, we undermine work and godly ambition. Honor and notoriety rest on the shoulders of genuine accomplishment and hard work. Notoriety and honor are biblical rewards for faithfulness. When we erroneously attribute a person's status to celebrity rather than honor, we rhetorically erase or disregard years of Christ-honoring labor. Moreover, we de-incentivize hard work and labor in others by punishing rather than rewarding faithfulness. Second, we undermine godly gratitude. The Lord calls us to show honor to those who serve well. 
We're to do that with our own leaders in our own local congregations, but we're also to show honor to those from other churches that minister to us in some way. By pejoratively branding faithful leaders as rock stars and celebrities, we effectively distance people from them. We mischaracterize honor-worthy examples and teach people to sneer when they should cheer God's work through others. Rather than gratitude, we stimulate inappropriate criticism. Third, we rob ourselves of examples to follow. The scripture is replete with exhortation to follow the example of others. Most of these passages appeal to congregations to follow the example of their leaders. Uh, See Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, for example. But sometimes entire churches are challenged to follow the example of other churches and leaders. See 2 Corinthians chapter 8, for example. So let's face it. We need examples. We primarily and mostly need local examples to follow. But we also need heroes, as Kevin DeYoung recently pointed out. When we tag faithful men with pejorative titles, we rob ourselves of potentially heroic examples we sometimes need. There are dangers to celebrity, but um, there are also significant dangers to hating our heroes and failing to honor the faithful. Lord willing, in a future post, we'll give some attention to how this theory of celebrity might make might point the way forward in correcting some things. We need to ask ourselves some questions like, what narrative allows a local church pastor to move to notoriety and honor and then possibly to celebrity? And in what ways are larger-than-life attributes developed in the stories we tell or participate in, and how do they contribute to uh, celebritization? What media and marketing practices promote this move to celebrity, and how might the audience distinguish between honor-due and undue attachment? But for now, I'd be interested in your thoughts on the framework or theory and the danger of labeling people we should honor celebrities or rock stars. Just a fantastic article, well thought out, and this gives us a framework for dealing with rock star pastors who have celebrity but um, really haven't earned any real honor. In fact, they should be considered um, infamous for their lack of handling God's word properly or faithfully. So anyway, great article there by Thabiti Anabwile. If you have an opportunity to take a look at it, go to the Gospel Coalition uh, website, thegospelcoalition.org. Click on blogs and look for Thabiti Anabwile's blog. This was posted on October 14th, 2011. October 14th, 2011. Okay, we are up on our second break, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio.
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. Now, this one had me angry and cross-eyed and smoke coming out of my ears. Man, when pastors start mangling uh, passages and basically saying, you got to submit and be quiet and just go with the flow and don't you dare criticize me. Yeah, that, that's about the time I start to lose it. Um, so hopefully I can keep it together during my sermon review here. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon? Um, <laughs> today's deception? Um, today's mangling of God's word comes to us uh, via the Wave Church in Clayton, North Carolina. Steve Kelly presiding in the name of the lecture... Is is your destiny connected to your leader? Yeah, do you want to achieve your destiny? You want to have your purpose in life? Well, it's connected to your leader, and you need to submit and just do what he says. Otherwise, you just never will achieve your destiny, apparently. Yeah, I, I wish I was making this up. I must warn you that this sermon could cause you to spontaneously combust. So you may want to have a fire extinguisher handy. I don't even think fuzzy bunny slippers could enhance the experience that you're about to experience if you're going to stick with me through the sermon review. So without any further ado, let me kill the music here and uh, we will now be listening to Steve Kelly. And the question being answered is, is your destiny... Connected to your leader. Here we go. Everybody say, is your destiny connected to your leader? Now that time you said it for the first time, but now that you know what it is, I want you to really say, is my destiny connected to my leader? And I want to tell you, with all my heart, I believe your destiny is connected to how well we learn how to serve those leaders that God puts in and over our life. This is not just a message for church oh, life. That is so backwards. How to serve the leaders God puts in and over our lives. Eh, wrong. 
Uh, the biblical model for leadership, especially for the pastoral office, is that the um, the pastors serve the sheep. The sheep do not serve the shepherd. Yeah, already we are off on the in the like heading down the wrong direction. This is a formula for spiritual abuse, uh, both financially, physically, and other ways too. And, and in terms of church leadership, but this is a message for life. I've got a daughter. She's 22 years old. I've been dating her since she was four. And every month we'll go somewhere. When she was four, we'd go to the, see all the Disney movies. And, you know, we were doing the Macarena and doing some dancing. And, and then, of course, as she gets older, she gets more expensive. And every month I've been dating her. She's now 22. And I've been doing it since she's four years old. Do you know my daughter never actually lacked low self-esteem and looking for a boyfriend and desperate to be dating? because every other girl was dating because she actually knew what it was to get the affection of a loving father. And so she wasn't craving or desiring things and desperate. Now, she's got a boyfriend now. She's had him for four years, and, and I'm trying to get rid of him, but he just won't go away And uh, because, after all, she's my daughter. And I, and I said to her one day, Alyssa, why do you think I date you every month, and why do you think I do that? And she goes, Dad, I know that you want me know, to know what it is to be treated by a gentleman, and when the day does come when I do date, if he doesn't treat me as good as you did he's not good enough for me I said you got that right girl come on and yet the other side of that is equally true that as much as I I want that I also understand as my daughter she's now dating a guy but before she was dating I said if you ever let your heart go towards somebody who is a rebel who has no respect for leadership no respect for his parents no respect to authority then understand that your destiny is connected to that person and you okay yeah, I gotta pause here for a second now there is a sense in which the scriptures teach that we are to honor our father and mother and that includes giving honor to those who are in authority over us um it's a completely different thing to basically make the claim that um the same honor that you owe to your boss is the same honor you owe to your pastor yeah two different types of honor there um yeah th we this is mm -hmm. Your destiny is not looking too exciting if you connect yourself to somebody who's just a rebel without a cause. You see, I do believe that our destiny is connected to our leader. Can you say amen? I've seen people who go, man, every church I've ever been to, I've been hurt. This church is unfriendly. It's unfriendly. It's changed. It's not the same anymore. Well, the Bible says he who wants friends must show himself to be friendly. Did it ever occur to you the problem could be you? That you might be the unfriendly person. Like every church I've ever been to, I hear guys say every girl I've ever dated just never worked out, you know, dysfunctional. Girls say every guy I've ever dated, he's a jerk. And somebody says every boss I've ever had has been a, just has never digged me. I've had problems. Hey, if you keep turning up at the scene of the accident, the only common denominator is you. Wherever you go, there you are. So you might think to yourself, oh, I'm going to move to Florida. I'll be free of all my problems. The only problem is if you, wherever you go, you take you with you. <laughs> Turn to the person next to you and say, relax, he's talking to me, not you. It's not for you. This is for somebody else. All right. Is my destiny connected to my leader? Have you got it? I want to show you some verses of the Bible. Before I start, this is true in every area of life. This is in a marriage. This is true. Amen. This is true with employees and employers. This is true in church life. This is true in politics. 
Amen. No point in complaining and criticizing people who are in leadership over you. The Bible says you're to pray for them. Amen. Some will get you praying more than others, but we're to pray for them. Amen. Numbers chapter 12. Have you got it? Numbers chapter 12. You've all got it and I've lost it. Praise the Lord. Where is Numbers? There it is. Numbers chapter 12 and look at verse 1. It says, Now Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife. So here's a question. Why were they speaking against Moses? Anybody know? Okay, we just read it. So why is it? They spoke against Moses. It's not a trick question, I promise you. It's a real simple answer. Because of his wife. They didn't like his wife, okay? And then it says here, for he married a Cushite. Now look what they say in verse 2. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Every time you speak against leadership, God hears it. Amen? Mm, No, that is not what this passage is teaching. That every time you speak against leadership, God hears it? What if your leader is Adolf Hitler? What if your leader is um, Sung Young Moon? What if your leader claims that he's Jesus Christ? What if your leader is wrongly handling God's word and mishandling the biblical text? Every time you complain about your leader, God hears. Notice at this point, there's no distinct. It doesn't matter who the leader is. If you grumble against him, God's going to hear it, and you're going to get in trouble. That's what this passage is supposedly about, right? Wrong. Okay. Now, if uh, let me let me give you a good um, suggestion. You you need to have at least a decent decent study Bible, or a- access to a good biblical commentary in a pa- in a passage like this. So you can, if you're not sure what's going on in this text, well, then you need to uh, you need to have some tools to help you out. Now, let's read this passage from the ESV, and then I'm going to read to you what uh, the good Lutheran commentator. Uh, Dr. Kretzman wrote regarding it so that you can see what's going on in this biblical text. And when you see what's going on, and then you can hear where things are going terribly wrong with the way um, Steve Kelly is mishandling this text. Okay, so Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke with Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married for he had married a Cushite woman. Apparently his, uh, his his other wife had died. Anyway, and they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? So this is a question regarding the word of the Lord. That's what the context is talking about. Who's hearing the word of God? Okay, now both Miriam and Aaron have some claims at least that would look legitimate as to receiving the word the word of the lord if you remember after the uh, the uh, after the lord delivered the uh, children of israel through the uh, red sea by parting the red sea and drowned pharaoh's army uh, miriam prophesied and uh, her prophecy and the song that she sung prophetically is recorded for us in the torah in the book of Exodus. So, I mean, you could say she's heard the word of the Lord. So the question is, this is not about just grumbling about Moses' wife. That becomes, you know, that becomes the springboard to the bigger issue. Has has the Lord indeed only spoken through Moses? Okay. Has he not spoken through us also? So the Lord heard it. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. 
And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. They both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. All right, you want to hear the word of the Lord? Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him. In a vision, I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Now when the cloud removed uh, removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. Aaron turned toward Miriam, but behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. And let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed for seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp for seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not set out on the march until Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Now, now remember the three rules for sound biblical interpretation. They are context, context, and context. So when we read this in context, it doesn't necessarily clear up the confusion. This is one of those rare times when it's going to take a little bit more than just reading the passage in context to clear up the confusion. That's why I'm going to recommend at this point, I'm going to read for you what uh, Dr. Paul Kretzman in his popular commentary on, you know, on the Old Testament writes regarding this. In Numbers chapter 12, he writes about the murmuring of Miriam and Aaron. Okay, now keep in mind the translation that uh, Dr. Kretzman is working from is the King James. So here's what we read. And Miriam and Moses, uh, sorry, and Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. They also became infected with uh, the virus of discontent because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. That's a Cushite. A Cushite. His first wife, Zipporah, apparently having died in the wilderness. Marriage with an Egyptian woman was not forbidden, but Miriam and, uh, but Miriam and under her leadership, Aaron also took this opportunity of registering their jealousy of their brother's position among the people of the Lord, since the prestige of Moses had been established more firmly than ever by reason of the recent happenings. And this is God appearing and revealing things to Moses, Moses spending all that time on uh, uh, at the top of Mount Sinai, uh, uh, literally alone, face to face with God, the fact that his face uh, was glowing with the glory of God. Okay, So they said, has not the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? So Miriam, as the prophetess in Exodus 15, verse 20, thought herself and her brother Aaron as the high priest and the bearer of the mysterious light and truth, see Exodus chapter 28, 30, entitled to a share in the teaching of the people. They wanted to have equal rights with their younger brother. And the Lord heard it. He took note of the complaint, for it was his intention to adjust matters with all possible speed. 
So now the man Moses was very meek, willing to subordinate himself to others fully, satisfied with the position of less importance above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. He was ever ready to endure in silence and to commit his justification to the Lord. This note is not a specimen of self-glorification, but a simple statement of fact, and thereby a defense of himself, for he swallowed the insult in silence. Not so, however, the Lord, whose honor and authority was at stake. So this is what's at stake is the honor and authority of the Lord, because the Lord is the one who chose Moses for the position that he was in. Moses is truly a prophet. I mean, a face-to-face prophet, a prophet like none other in the Old Testament. Nobody compares with uh, Moses. So the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto Miriam, Come out ye three unto the tabernacle of the congregation. He wanted to set an example at once. And the three came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of, of the cloud, which here again sank down from its position above the tabernacle and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called to Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. And the clouds separated them from Moses. Moses was thus on the inside at the very door of the holy place, while Miriam and Aaron stood out in the court, probably on the east side of the altar of burnt offering. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, any ordinary person endued with prophetic gifts in some form, as was the case with Miriam, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. Those were the forms of communication which the Lord used with ordinary prophets. Okay, My servant Moses is not so. He, who was faithful in all mine house, having approved himself in his entire service and all the worship connected with the tabernacle as the sanctuary of Jehovah in the midst of his people, to him God had entrusted his house, his people to him, and he had given him leadership of the children of Israel. With him will I speak mouth to mouth and not merely in obscure visions, even apparently so that Moses could see God in some clear manifestation and not in dark speeches and in similitude. The form of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore, then ye, why were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Reverential awe of God, whose minister and representative Moses would, was, should have kept Miriam and Aaron from uttering a single word against his authority. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Having called them to account, having rebuked them for their presumption, the Lord removed his presence from them, preparatory to inflicting some form of punishment upon them. The entire worship was thus interrupted, and the entire machinery of the cultists came to a standstill. God himself is the judge between his servants and those that dare to oppose their own notions to the precepts of the Lord. And here's the final shot. It is a dangerous thing to challenge the authority of such as have the word of the Lord on their side. So, yeah, so the, 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 what's going on here is very important. This is a showdown between an ordinary prophet and an extraordinary prophet. Okay, Miriam truly did receive the word of the Lord. She was a prophetess, but she was an ordinary prophet, and Moses was like none other. And God had personally selected him, and she should have been in fear and awe of Moses and not despised him, not disdained him, not spoken against him. Okay. Now, here's the deal. By Steve Kelly of Wave Church, 
somehow comparing himself to be on the same level as Moses um, is a complete, complete mangling and twisting of this text, and the ends of which is basically to to quiet critics, to ch- you know, basically shut them up, get them to be silenced, to browbeat them with this text, and he's not rightly handling God's word. In fact, God's word is not on Steve Kelly's side in how he's mishandling this text. God's word actually stands against him. He's blaspheming God's name here by mishandling this text and basically um, grabbing for himself authority that is not given to him in his pastoral office. This is a very important thing to keep in mind as you're listening to how he's mishandling this text. He's abusing these people in his congregation. And so here they are asking the question, has the Lord spoken only for Moses? What they're saying is who died and left him in charge? I mean, we got an equal say. We've got equal position. We should have equal rights. We should have equal opportunity. We should have equal leadership, equal influence. And they're speaking against him. And God heard it. Now look at this next verse. This is funny. I love this. This is cool. Verse 3, now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now Moses wrote that about himself. How humble can you be that you can write that about yourself? And not just write it, but is that more humble than anyone on planet earth? And God goes, put that in the word. That's a good thought right there. Even God agreed with him. That's pretty humble. Imagine walking up to somebody saying, I'm the most humble person you've ever met in your life. That would be me, humble. You've got to be pretty humble to be able to say that about yourself. All right, so I, I see these things and I laugh, all right? And so at once the Lord said to Moses and Aaron Miriam, come out of the tent, meaning all three of you. So the three of them came out and the Lord spoke, the Lord came down in a pearl of cloud. He stood at the entrance and he summoned Aaron and Miriam. Why? Because they spoke against Moses and God heard it. Amen. When you speak against your boss, God hears it. When you speak against, you know, that God-ordained authority and leadership structure, God hears it. Come on, somebody say amen. You know, you might be a cell group leader and you're going, hey, our cell group leaders multiplied and now me, somebody else says, look, we want to take this connect group to another level and start another one and take maybe half of those people and start another connect group. And you go, no, no, these are my people. And who who do they think they are to try and split up what we're doing when it's not split up, it's multiply. Amen. And you got to be careful. You don't become a demi. So notice the uh, application here has to do with um, particular polity within their congregation. Again, this is misapp- this is misapplying this text. God, and you fail to recognize the authority structures that God puts in and over your life. I've had people say to me, Pastor, I'm with you all the way. Pastor, I'm behind you 100%. I love you, Pastor. I think you're awesome. Man, I recognize the leadership gift that's on your life. And then I hear that same person, when they put their car into the parking lot and a parking attendant tries to get them to come this direction, no one's telling me where I'm parking my car. Who do you think you are? So apparently this is if this text teaches you that the parking lot attendants are basically you know, speaking with the authority of God. God's word is on their side. And if you don't do what the parking lot attendants are doing, well, you can suffer the same fate as Miriam. They come into the building and Usher tries to help them find a seat. Don't you tell me where I'm going to sit. I'll sit where I want to sit. I love you, Pastor. But you can't recognize delegated leadership and authority. You got a problem. Just turn to the person next to you and say, he's definitely not talking to me. It must be you. Just do that right now. 
Amen. And so here they are, and the Lord comes down and he says, now listen, he says, he says, now listen to my words. Let me know they're in trouble. And when a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. If that was Yongi Cho, he'd say vision. And he says, I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Look what God says. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? God asks the question, why didn't the fear of me grip your heart? Why couldn't you recognize that I have ordained him and anointed him as your leader? And when you speak against against him, you speak against me. And where was the fear of God in your life to speak against who I'm raising up? <laughs> it's very quiet in here. We'll just keep moving. Praise the Lord. And then it says, the anger of the Lord burned against them and he left them. And the cloud lifted up from the tent meeting and there stood Miriam, leprous. So of course, Aaron takes 10 steps back so he doesn't get it. And Aaron turned to her and saw that she had leprosy. And he said to Moses, please, my Lord, my Lord, a minute ago, he's not calling Moses Lord. He's going, I'm your equal. Now he's Lord. How many of he had an attitude adjustment? Yeah, please, my Lord, do not let this sin which we have so foolishly committed be held against us. Now, he went from going, hey, who died and left Moses in charge to please what we said was sinful. He went from going, who died and paid Moses the man, to seeing, listen to this, to reestablishing and recognizing Moses is my Lord. In other words, my leader. Amen. So I want to ask you a question. Is your destiny connected to your leader? Because here we see Miriam and Aaron make a mistake, failing to recognize God-given, God-appointed, God-anointed leadership, and it actually affected her destiny. You're not going to do too well with leprosy in life. And of course, Moses prays to God and says, God, you've heard them. They've actually repented. Please heal her. And God says, hey, if I were her dad, I'd spit in her face. That's what God thinks. You know, it just, if I were the devil, I would do everything I can to get people to fail to recognize the God-given leadership structures that he puts in and over people's lives. I would do everything I can to try to cause schisms and division and just, you know, people trying to pull down leadership. And think about Jesus. There's Jesus on the cross. And the Bible says that he was crucified on the cross. And even those around the cross said, Jesus, if you are the son of God, come down off your cross. Come down here and stand with us and then we'll believe that you are the son of God. It's an amazing thing how the devil always tries to pull down leadership and bring leadership back to the level of normality. But thank God for leaders. Thank God for people who are prepared to step up. And By the way, this is a classic technique of wolves. Wolves, you know, one of their favorite passages, don't touch God's anointed. Don't you dare challenge my teaching. Don't you dare open up your Bible and say what I'm teaching is wrong. Don't you touch God's anointed. Um, yeah, so at this point, um, yeah, there, notice that there's like no out for false teaching. No out for biblically mangling God's word. Nope, you just got to submit, submit, submit. Get to it, otherwise your destiny won't be coming your way. You won't achieve your destiny. God's going to punish you and give you leprosy like he did Miriam. And be all that God's called us to be. Come on, somebody say amen. 
And you might say, well, wait a minute, Steve, that's Old Testament. Do you have any New Testament scriptures? I'm so glad you asked. Come here to Matthew. Come on, get to Matthew chapter 11. Watch this. I love Matthew. I love this story, actually. Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to read in verse 2. Say, got it if you got it. Where are the rest of you? All right. Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. Okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this one in context because context is going to clear this up. Okay, let's read this story. And we're going to ask the question, is Matthew chapter 11, the story that begins in verse 2, does it have anything to do with submitting to a leader? Okay, let's, that, just have this question at the forefront of your mind. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So Jesus answered, Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Okay? So that's his answer. Now, it's important to note that Jesus here is recounting the messianic prophecies that are recorded in the prophet Isaiah. Okay? And so I, I want to review a few of these because it's important to note that Jesus leaves one one kind of thing out. For those who were living in Jesus' time, they were really expecting the Messiah to show up any time. And so John the Baptist would be familiar with these passages. But let's read uh, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Isaiah prophesying about the Messiah says this, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Okay, That's one passage that you know is referred to, a uh, messianic prophecy from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18, which reads, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. So this is another messianic prophecy regarding Jesus Christ. Also, Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 through 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Another messianic prophecy. Also, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 18, which reads, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them, and ears that are open, but does not hear them. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and to make it glorious. Okay? And last but not least is Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 2. And so Jesus here, in this list that he's giving to um, John the Baptist, you know, with the question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? This list is important. 
The reason why is because here Jesus is specifically referring to me, uh, the messi His actions are perfectly fulfilling the messianic prophecies given in the prophet Isaiah. But Isaiah 61, uh, verses 1 through 2, Jesus leaves out one. He leaves out one for John the Baptist. Here's what it says. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has set me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound. So this is important. And the reason why this is important is because here Jesus is answering the question straight up. And any good first century Jew who knows his Old Testament, who knows the prophets, would hear this list from Jesus, and Jesus is saying, I am the Christ. But Jesus also is sending another message, and the message is to John the Baptist. By omitting one of the major prophecies regarding the uh, the Messiah, the setting of the prisoners free, Jesus has basically omitted that so that John the Baptist doesn't have hope, misplaced hope that he will get out of prison. So Jesus says, go and tell John what you hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Who He who has ears, let him hear. Okay? So Jesus, you know, then goes on, and then what happens is, is shortly after this, we get the the terrible story of uh, John the Baptist being beheaded in prison. Okay, so is this a story about submitting to leadership? Hardly. This is not a story about submitting to leadership. So, the fact that he's steered into this passage should tell you something. Okay. Biblical hermeneutics, one of the primary rules is that Scripture interprets Scripture and that clear passages govern unclear passages. So it's significant to note that he's going to a passage that on its face says nothing about submitting to leadership. This should alert you to the fact that mm, he's up to no good. Watch what he does. When John, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison, so where is he? He's in prison. What Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, go back and tell John what you have heard and what you have seen. The blind receive the sight, the lame walk, and those who have leprosy are cured, and the deaf, the deaf hear and the dead are raised. And the good news is being preached to the poor. So John, he is in prison what Christ is doing. Everybody got that? Where's John? He's in prison. And what's he hearing? 
He's hearing what Christ is doing. And as a result of what he's hearing, he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, Jesus, are you the man? Could you imagine being in prison thinking you've set your whole life devoted to make people ready for the Messiah? And then as you're about to die, you suddenly realize I could have the wrong guy. That's not a good day. And so he sends these disciples going, and, and, and I, I marvel at this scripture because we just got to go back. This is Matthew chapter 11. Go back to Matthew chapter 3. And there's the story about John the Baptist. And we know John is related to Jesus. We know that when, when Mary was pregnant and Elizabeth was pregnant, that both of them had, one had Jesus, one had John the Baptist. Their spirits leapt within the mother's wombs. So and there was a spirit recognition of who these people are. And we know John the Baptist was there to make people ready for the Messiah. Amen. And John was T.D. Jakes on steroids. John's going, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready. The Messiah's coming. Repent, repent, repent. The Messiah's coming. And everybody's repenting. Everybody's getting baptized. And they're into John. They're going, John, you bad. You're a bad preacher. You're bad to the, you are so the man. John, you are the man. You're bad. You're a preaching machine. We're all repenting. We're all getting baptized. We're into John. You are the man. And John says, I'm not the man. I'm just trying to get you ready for the man. The lamb, he the man. I'm just the man getting you ready for the lamb. I'm not bad. Jesus, the Messiah, he the lamb of God, the lamb, he the man. I'm not the man, the lamb, he the man. And they're all going, who could the lamb be when we think John is awesome? When we think John is the most anointed thing, man, imagine the Messiah, what he would. And John says, you think I'm something? He says, when he comes, I'm not even worthy to loosen his sandals. And they're all going, man, we think John's the man. But John says, he's not the man. John says, I must decrease and he must increase. Imagine what the lamb is like. If John isn't the man, if he's not worthy to loosen his, we're not even worthy to be in John's presence. The lamb? Wow. One day walks Jesus into the Jordan River and John says, Behold, the lamb, he the man, that's him. This is the Steve Kelly translation of how this plays out. And Jesus walks in and says, baptize me. And John goes, oh, no, 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 you baptize me. Jesus, shut up, John, do what you're told. And then, listen to it. This is in the Bible. Heaven opened. God speaks audibly. Behold, my son, the lamb, he the man. Everyone's going, wow, a voice from heaven. Jesus, the lamb, he the man. I hold the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. Wow. John was there. John was there. Go forward back to Matthew chapter 11. Are you the man? What happened? What happened? Okay, I'm going to point something out here. The way he set this up, now allows him to answer a question the biblical text doesn't answer. He's going to engage in eisegesis. Now, I'm going to point something out to you that's significant in the telling of the story. Now, when, this is Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, 
he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Okay. This is important. Notice that John still has disciples at this point. John the Baptist still has disciples. His mission is accomplished. Jesus has arrived on the scene, and some of John the Baptist's disciples are remaining his disciples. One could argue from the text that there's a problem here, okay? And that it's significant that John the Baptist sends his disciples because then John the Baptist's disciples hear from the mouth of Jesus that he's the Messiah. Okay? John's life's over. It's just about finished at this point. He's he's in his very, very last days and hours. And at this point, Jesus, you know, John the Baptist's disciples, it's time for them to stop tending to John the Baptist and for them to join with the one whom he was pointing the finger to, the one who he was heralding, the one he was preparing the way for. So... I mean, at this point, you know, I'm pointing to what's in the text to answer the question. Steve Kelly? Oh, he's engaging in full-blown eisegesis at this point. Watch what he does. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us except for one little verse. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, what was he hearing? See, John took a Nazarite vow never to drink alcohol. And here's Jesus. He hears what Jesus is. And here's Jesus rolling out the barrel. He's turning water into wine. Here's Jesus. I mean, John's going, repent, you filthy, rotten sinners. And Jesus is forgiving a woman caught in the act of adultery. Everything that John thought Jesus was, Jesus isn't. To the point where he's so confused. I think I got the wrong guy. You better go ask him, are you the lamb? I'm not so sure anymore. And notice Jesus' response. Jesus says, go back and tell John what you see, what you hear. The blind see, the deaf hear. Good news is being preached. The dead are raised. You know what Jesus is saying? See, John heard in prison what Christ was doing and wondered if he really was the Messiah. See, John said, when he comes, I'm not worthy to loosen his sandals. But right now, John's thinking, I'm not so sure he's worthy to loosen mine. He was disillusioned by leadership style. Then we're in the biblical text. Does it say that John the Baptist was disillusioned by Jesus' leadership style? There's only one reason that I can think of that Steve Kelly would say something like this. To basically shut his critics up. He's now likened himself to Jesus. Like Jesus, my leadership style may offend some people. He heard in prison what Christ was doing. So Jesus is going to nail it. Jesus says, go back and tell John what you see, what you hear. You say, well, if I were the pastor, I wouldn't do that. Well, that's the whole point. You're not the pastor. If I were the boss, I wouldn't do that. That's the whole point. You're not the boss, and you probably never will be until you learn to get under God of giving them leadership. Oh, man. 
again, I come back to the observation that's clearly in the text, which, by the way, other biblical commentaries uh, commentators have picked up on. Jesus says to John the Baptist's disciples, go tell John what you hear and what you see. Jesus is saying that not just for the sake of John the Baptist, but for the sake of John the Baptist's disciples who are hanging on to John. Remember, John said, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. Come on, somebody say amen. If I were the teacher, I wouldn't do that. Well, you're not the teacher. It's gone very quiet. You're starting to scare me. I'm backing up a little now. Hey, this is the principle of life. I mean, you can't walk up to a policeman. A policeman pulls you over and gives you a ticket for spit. I don't recognize your anointing. I'm not under your authority. Oh, yes, you are, baby. Hey, one of our, one of our team, one of our pastors actually was driving somewhere to an appointment. He came up to me. He says, Steve, he goes, I got a speeding ticket on the way to an appointment. He says, could the church pay for my speeding ticket? I said, no, if you speed, you bleed. You just got to realize God has put governing authorities of our lives and how well you handle that will determine how far you go in life. You see, here's John. John ultimately lost his head. You have me here? But watch what Jesus says because Jesus doesn't just say, hey, listen, the run." Jesus said this basically, the runs are on the board. You may not like the way I do it, but look, the blind see, the deaf hear. It may not, well, if I were the pastor, I wouldn't do that. That's the whole point. You're not. You're there to serve the vision and the leader that God has put you here. Can you? Oh, my. You're here to serve the. Uh, oh, man. I, I got to back this up. You've got to hear this. I'm sorry. This is flat out wrong. This is. Uh, sorry. This is satanic. That's the only way I can describe this. Listen again. Here's John. John ultimately lost his head. You have me here? But watch what Jesus says, because Jesus doesn't just say, hey, listen, the run, Jesus said this, basically, the runs are on the board. You may not like the way I do it, but look, the blind see, the deaf hear. It may not, well, if I were the pastor, I wouldn't do that. That's the whole point. You're not. You're there to serve the vision and the leader that God has put you here. Can you say amen? You're there to serve the vision and the leader who God has put there. This is 180 degrees backwards. The people in the congregation are not there to serve the pastor. The pastor is there to serve them. Amen. And this is a message that's bigger than church. This is in a marriage. Amen. This is in a family. This is just an attitude toward life. And I love what Jesus says because then he nails it in verse 6. Look what he says. I love this. In the King James, it actually says a little different. It says, blessed is he who does not get offended in me. Or blessed is he who does not fall away because of me. In other words, Jesus is saying to John, John, you may not like my style. The runs are on the board. But John, just get something that you really need to understand. There is a blessing when you choose to never get offended by leadership style. Can you say amen? There's a blessing when you make the decision. It may not be how you do it. It may not be why you do it. It may not be where you do it or when you do it. But as a leader, if you can get under leadership and just make a decision, I will not get offended. Come on, somebody say amen. Come on, somebody say amen. 
He's just trying to challenge John. Don't get offended because of me. You know, we, uh, we do some different outreaches in the church and sometimes people don't dig it. I mean, I had this guy, I had one person come over and say, excuse me, she said, I wasn't getting much out of the worship this morning. I said, that's okay, we weren't worshipping you. Somebody came up to me one week, we're doing a Halloween outreach and we just call Halloween, Halloween, because that's what it is. And, uh, and so we do this outreach and costume carnival and all that kind of stuff and people wear all the costumes and it's for the community. It's not for us, it's for them. You've been here. So we have our praise team playing country and Western music and it's the number one music in all of the United States and I'm very well aware of that. It's not my favorite music to tell you the truth. I'm not a big country and Western music fan. To tell you the truth, I hate, I know where I am. I have to be careful. I'm treading on hollow ground. But let me just say, it's not my favorite music. Can you understand me? So I just like him and go, I'm leaving the church. I said, why? She goes, because you play country and Western music at the, hol- at the Halloween night. And I said, it wasn't for us. It's for them. It's for the people in the community that come out and we want to give them a safe, wholesome environment. Aware. And, and, and Lucifer that year won the best dress costume because he actually had the best costume. <laughs> I'm leaving. It's not for us. It's for them. Most of the people, many of the people who actually the first encounter they ever have with Wave Church is our Halloween night outreach into the community. I had, we had one year a Navy SEAL. Matter of fact, he actually was, he skydived out of a helicopter down into the church parking lot dressed as Santa Claus. And, and he's actually, this seal was one of the seals that just lost his life in that helicopter accident, friend. And, and uh, but he, he dressed up and I said, do me a favor. You gotta, yeah, no, you gotta be good to talk a seal to dress up as Santa. And so, and so he goes, all right, I'll do it. And, and I said, look, this is what I want you to do. When you come down with your shoot and everything, I just want you to get all the kids around and I want you to tell them all that it's actually about Jesus, not about Santa. And it was awesome. And many people gave their life to Christ. And one person said, if you ever have Satan claws in this church, I'm leaving the church. And I always think, don't curse the darkness. Let's light a candle. Let's not define ourselves by what we're against. Amen. And there are people, hey, you may not like the style, but the gospel's being preached. People are... No, I, I, I don't think it is. No, I, I, have, I can't say that I've really heard the gospel clearly preached by this guy. Say the kingdom is advancing. Come on, somebody say amen. <laughs> Tell me to Acts chapter 13. Watch this. This is cool. You're going to love this. Acts chapter 13. And it says here in verse 2, that's page 1071 in my Bible, if you're wondering where we are here. Acts chapter 13, verse 2, that says the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, they're all gathered together. And in verse 2, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So who said put these two brothers together? Again, it's not a trick question, it's just there. Who said to put them together? The Holy Spirit. And what did he say? Put Barnabas, put Paul and Paul together for the work which I have called them. So they fasted and they prayed. They laid their hands on them and they sent them off. This is the beginning of Paul's three missionary journeys. And then, of course, we know he goes to Rome. He gets shipwrecked. And a lot of it is really about now the book of Acts, a lot of the times of his in prison. Everybody got this? Got it? Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Now, Paul was useless to the church when he first got saved. He was a problem. They had to get rid of him. They had to send him back to his hometown for 12 years because he was causing so many problems. The Bible actually says when they got rid of him and sent him back to his hometown, the church began to grow after they got rid of him. 
okay? And so, which is the point about giving people time to grow and mature. But now Barnabas go gets him, go gets him and brings him back. And the Holy Spirit says, Paul's good now. Let's and put Barnabas with Paul and let's get them doing it. Who, it was the will of God for them to be together. Everybody? Okay, now I'm going to read the passage that, you know, and so that you can hear uh, what God's word really says about Paul's early days in Christianity, okay? Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, verse 26. Here's what it says. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. This is Paul. So this is right after his conversion. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoken to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. So, um, yeah, by the way, this should like, you know, if if you do any cross-reference work, uh, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, he was killed by this same group. He was killed by the Hellenists. So he, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, the ones whom he was with when Stephen was stoned. That's important. But they were seeking to kill him, to kill him the same way they'd killed Stephen. So when the brothers learned this, they brought him, Paul, down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. It's to save his life. They don't want to have happen to him uh, what happened to Stephen. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it multiplied. Okay, so yeah, it was, <laughs> oh man, anyway, so there's what the text says. It's interesting how he tells the story, and why does he tell the story this way? Oh yeah, well, if you don't like my leadership style, uh, you, it doesn't matter, you just need to submit. Maybe you're just too immature, that's your problem. You need to wait for God to call you the way he called Paul, but... You know, because you're just causing controversy and problems. See, but uh, because, you know, the church was smart enough to get rid of Paul when his leadership was just a little bit too green and his tactics were not quite right. uh, You know, he had to marinate for a little while and then God, the Holy Spirit, was able to uh, use him. Yeah, see, that's your problem. That's why you're contradicting me. That's why you're opposing me, uh, Steve Kelly. And rather than getting behind my vision the way you should be doing, uh, you know, maybe the reason why is because you're so immature. Everybody got it? Okay. Now watch what happens. Acts chapter 13, we're reading in verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, put them together. You got it? Come with me to Acts chapter 15, two chapters later, and look what the Bible says. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, and no doubt Paul was the leader of the New Testament church at this time. You have me here? Barnabas helped get him. You know, Barnabas is the one that actually said to the disciples, you need to receive Paul. He actually has truly found Christ. You have me here? So Barnabas had a real role to play in Paul's, you know, um, validation. You have me here? Barnabas is the one that got him and brought him to the disciples. Everybody see this? But Paul rises up actually to be more of a leader than even Barnabas was. Where Paul is now saying, and isn't it funny in life sometimes when the people who led you to Christ, you find yourself going further than where they went. And that's not an easy moment for some people. 
You with me here? But God raises one up and he just, you just got to be good with who God raises. <laughs> Turn to the person next to you and say, he's not talking to anybody here. It must be for another church. It's for all those watching online. Okay. And so Paul says to Barnabas, come on, let's go and see, um, you know, uh, visit the churches we preach and see how they're doing. And Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them. And, uh, but Paul did not think it was wise because he deserted them in Pamphylia, which is the whole idea of don't reward bad behavior. There's a leadership lesson. And he had not continued with them in the work of the Lord. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and, and left and commended all the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Now watch this. Is your destiny connected to your leader? Who said put Paul and Barnabas together? Somebody help me. The Holy Spirit. Two chapters later, they're breaking up. Barnabas walked out of his God-given relationship and he's never heard from again. But the writer of the book of Acts stays with Luke. Luke rather stays with Paul, the writer of the book of Acts, and actually continues to write about all that Paul was doing. Is your destiny connected to your leader? It was the will of God for them to be together and Barnabas stepped out of the will of God. Come on, somebody say amen. You see, friends, there's a big difference between... So Barnabas stepped out of the will of God, and that's why we never hear from him ever again. You see, he could have had a lot more notoriety in the New Testament if it weren't for the fact that he just stepped out of the will of God. Unbelievable. Argument from silence. You can just put about anything you want in silence, can't you? Between went and sent. What happened to that person? Oh, they went somewhere and did this. What happened to that person? We sent them. And I believe with all my heart that one of the reasons why we're experiencing such blessing at Wave Church is because I wasn't one of those that went from Hillsong Church, but I was sent with the anointing and the support of the pastor and the leadership. And that's why we're seeing God bless us. Amen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, based upon what's taught at Hillsong Church and your church, I could argue that there's no biblical case that could be made that says that what you're experiencing is God's blessing there. Amen. All right, I gotta, I gotta land the plane. Everybody say, land the plane. All right, tell me one more scripture and we are done. First Chronicles chapter 12. And I want to show you this because is your, can anybody see that your destiny is connected to your leader? Can anybody see that? And not only if that's true, then I want to give you another question. Have you come to help? Have you come to help. See, some people, they come into a church and they think, I'm Mighty Mouse. Here I am to save the day. How many remember Mighty Mouse? They were back in the days when real cartoons were real cartoons. And, and some people come into a church and they go, man, I'm, and I had, back in Hillsong Church, I had this guy say, man, I'm a drummer. And I've come in the Hillsong Church and I'm here to bring a whole new dimension of worship and a whole new way of worshiping. And we're, I'm, just, I'm telling, the music's good, but I feel like if you'll just let me get in here and really lead this church. And I'm going, dude, there are 6,000 people that love to worship the way you are. And if you were a part of a drummer of another church and you liked where it was going, what are you doing here? Have you come to help? Have you come to change and you think you're the be all and end all? then somewhere that's not going to go well. If you come in with your ministry wanting the church to recognize you and all that you, God's called you to do, but you're not there to help, I promise you somewhere, somehow that will break down. 
it will create a problem. Look what the Bible says here in First Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 8. Some of the Gadites, these are great soldiers, defected to David. David was running for his life. And they defected to David in the stronghold in the desert, and they were brave warriors. Everybody say brave warriors. Ready for battle, able to handle the shield and the spear. They were preachers and songwriters. Their faces were like that as lions. They were swift as gazelles. And look at verse 14. These Gadites were army commanders. The least was a match for a hundred, and the grace was a match for a thousand. These are army rangers, friends. These are special forces. And they come and they defected. They left where they were. They recognized an anointing that was on the life of David. And some of you have come from where you were because you see something on your pastors, Matt and Martha, and you say, I want in. I want to support. I want to connect to that anointing. I want to be a part of that house. But we got to teach people how to come in. Amen. We got to teach. Okay. So- this passage from First Chronicles has nothing to do with pastors at all. So David, he doesn't go, oh, the least could kill a hundred, the greatest can kill a thousand. Oh, welcome. You've got leadership gifts. David, the Bible says, went out to meet them and look what he says to them. He says in verse, where are we? Verse 17, David went out to meet them. And he said, if you've come to help me, I am ready to have you unite with me. But if you've come to betray me to my enemies, and my hands are free of violence. May the God of our fathers see it and judge now. So here's a question. In this ministry expo that you're about to go out to afterwards and sign up, is your destiny connected to your leader? Oh, you betcha it is. But all- and your leader is Steve Kelly, and uh, you know. So you, hey, so here's the question: uh, Steve Kelly's like King David. Have you come there to um, join him and get behind him? Oh man! Also understand that when you actually are willing to serve and participate, you need to be that person that says. Pastor, I'm not here to get my agenda. I'm not here to push my ministry and what I got to do. I'm just here to help you. And no matter how talented or how gifted you are, you surrender that and you say, I'm here to serve the vision that God has put in your heart. Amen? Serve the vision that God's put in Steve Kelly's heart. Yeah, so this is the second part of vision casting, casting it to the folk. You receive it, and then you cast it and get everyone behind you. So they serve you and the vision you received, supposedly in your heart. Yeah, this isn't taught in the Bible. Amen. Now, no, I can't say amen to any of this. How many, sitting here, we're doing Mighty Mouse. Let's bring back one more thing from the past. How many remember the movie Mrs. Doubtfire? Let me see your hands. I mean, that was when movies were movies. Men dressing up as women. And, you know, and uh, if you haven't seen it, it's a funny movie. There's a scene where this woman, this mother, is looking for a new nanny because the husband was kicked out of the house. And she's looking for someone to take care of the kids. And this is this nanny telling this mother what she is willing to do and what she's not willing to do. There's my alarm telling me my time is up. And so, but I got two minutes on that clock, so I'm taking those two minutes. And, uh, but here, here listen, she, she's applying for a job. You got it? And in the process of the application, she's going to spell out everything she won't do. That's like a lot of Christians. Hey, I, I'll come, but I'm not getting on a roster. 
I'll come, but I'm not doing children's ministry. I, 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 but I'm not doing that. Don't ask me to do that. And, and if I'm going to be on singers, don't you put me in the choir because I'm a front row singer. I'm a big deal. It's a shame people don't know who I think I am. You have me here? Okay, I'll, I'll run a cell group, but you know, don't expect me to be in church every week. I, I want to be a leader, but I'm not given. Check this scene out. A lot of Christians. Watch it. I don't do laundry, I don't do windows, I don't do carpets, I don't do bathtubs, I don't do toilets, and I don't do diapers. Well, my, my children have been potty trained for quite some time. Hmm. Well, I don't do washing, I don't do basements, I don't do dinners, I don't do reading. Ah. Yes. Well, we have your number. Thank you so much for oh. coming. We'll be getting back to you. Thank you. I'll show you to the door. Yes, here we are. Please. Did you catch it? How many Christians come in the church going, well, I don't do car parking, I don't do security, I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do children's ministry, but I do want the microphone, sing and dance, and do I get frequent flyers, and are you going to promote my ministry? Do I get an office? Do I get a badge? Do I get a title? Do I get entitlement? Do I get recognized? Will the pastor talk to me? Will you come to my house for lunch? I, 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 want, I want a birthday party, and it's my party, and I'll cry if I want to. Church. I want you to say, we're here to help. I want you to say, we're here to help. I want you to say to your pastors, we're here to help. And your destiny is connected to your leader. All of your dreams, all of your vision, all that God has put inside of you will come to pass if you'll just figure out that as you serve greatly. All of your vision for your life will come to pass if you serve your pastor. Unbelievable leaders, your own future is guaranteed. Give the Lord a hand if you receive the word. Come on. I'm Come not, on, you can do better than that. Give I'm God not clapping. I got to take time just for two very quick things. Number one, I want to pray for anybody here today. And I- Okay, we're done. That wasn't God's word that was preached. That was a wolf trying to create the impression that you need to get behind me and serve me. Because God's given me a vision. This is what the, the logical result of vision-casting pastorship is all about. Vision-casting leadership. Rather than the pastor serving the congregation and feeding God's sheep, they fleece the flock of God and make the sheep serve him. To say that I'm disgusted by what I heard uh, would be an understatement. The problem is that this is not an isolated incident. This is the primary leadership model of all of the seeker-driven churches. This is what all of the vision-casting pastors are really actually all about. It's 180 degrees backwards. May I recommend a resource? Go to uh, the website bookofconcord.com or bookofconcord.org. It's one of those two. You'll find the uh, the Confessions of the Lutheran Church. And in there, there's a document written by Martin Luther called The Power and Primacy of the Pope. I strongly recommend that you read that document because uh, this is the, 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 by the way, this vision casting, get behind me, serve me type of leadership. That's what go, That's what's going on in the Pope, in the office of Pope as well. And uh, and you know and bishops in the church who basically say it's all about serving them, 
Martin Luther does a fine, fine job of, of basically bashing that false doctrine, that false notion of leadership, and bludgeoning it to death with God's word. Worth a read if you haven't read it. All right, we are at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And, uh, yeah, need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. And uh, we, well, we need your support financially in order to keep doing what we're doing. If you don't already support us, please visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of the friendly yellow buttons there and support this important radio outreach. And thank you, thank you, thank you for those of you who do support us. Uh, what you do is not, is not does not go uh, unnoticed. Your support does not go unnoticed, so thank you. All right, so we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. What would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sin. That's a message we didn't hear in that last sermon. Amen. Amen.